All right, so let's jump in. I want to start off with a question this morning. Who remembers what John's goal was in writing his gospel? Talked about a few weeks ago. You can just shout it out. That you might believe, right? That's the goal, that we might believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that by believing, we might have life in his name. And if you remember, John decided to use signs to persuade his readers to believe, events and teachings in the life of Christ, which pointed to something beyond themselves. In other words, the entire book of John is a giant come-and-see sign. A giant come and see sign that he is laying before us. And this morning, we're going to be exposed to the tip of the iceberg, a small miracle that even Jesus thinks is unimpressive. That even Jesus thinks is unimpressive. But before we get there, and before we get to the point toward which this entire passage is driving, John introduces us to some of Jesus' first disciples. And what I think we'll find are some things that are both incredibly encouraging, while at the same time, really challenging for us. So if you have your Bibles, we are in John chapter 1. We're going to be looking at verses 35 through 51 in this first section. What are you looking for? Verses 35 through 39. Now because of the narrative structure of our passage, what I plan on doing this morning is simply walking through the story and pointing out some things along the way. Like, So, so pretend you're on a road trip and, and I'm in the front seat, and I'm just going to be saying, hey, look at that. That's something you should look at. And, and just keep in mind, there's a lot to see as we're going to work our way through this particular passage. And so verses 35 through 39, it says this. The next day, John was standing with two of his disciples, and he looked at Jesus as he walked by, and he said, behold, the Lamb of God. The two, the two disciples heard him say this, and they followed Jesus. Jesus turned and saw them following and said to them, what are you seeking? And they said to him, Rabbi, which means teacher, where are you staying? And he said to them, come and you will see. So they came and saw where he was staying. And they stayed with him that day, for it was about the 10th hour. So the first thing that stands out is this little word again. Notice in verse 35, it says, the next day again, John was standing with two of his disciples. And so it seems that John the Baptist went back to the same place he was standing the day before. Only this time, he brought two of his disciples with him. And while he's standing there, the text says that he looked at Jesus as he walked by. I, I kind of love this scene, right, because they're standing in the same place, and it says that John looks at Jesus, and Jesus is just walking by as, as though this is just like an everyday occurrence. But, but there's something interesting about this word, look. It's not just simply like, John glanced over and saw Jesus walking by. No, no, no. John is staring at Jesus as he walks by. John is staring at him. The way someone might gaze at a painting in a museum, he is fixed on this man that is walking by. And, and while he's staring, he cries out and he says, Look, look, the Lamb of God. Now, Pastor Seski preached about this last week, and that word behold, like, like it's a very fancy word, but it really just means, look, like pay attention, everybody, eyes on that guy. Do what I'm doing. Stare at him. Point your eyes in that direction. And, and so what he does when he says this, when he says, look, the Lamb of God, he, he's kind of preaching a mini-sermon. 
because they would have understood, as Teske pointed out last week, what it meant that this man was the Lamb of God, that he was the fulfillment of Israel's scriptures. He was the one who would make atonement for their sins. They understood that category. And so he's preaching a sermon, and then, and then what happens? They follow. Now, now remember, just the day before, he was in the same place. And while he was there, he witnessed Jesus walking toward him. And so John, and we got to get into his head a little bit, he wanted to see him again. He wanted to see Jesus again. And not only did he want to see him again, but he wanted his friends to see him as well. He wanted them to experience the one they've heard about, the one that they have all been waiting for. And so he went to the same place thinking he's going to show up again. I know he's going to be there again. And so he goes. Now, if we scratch at this a bit, we begin to see a little bit of a model emerge. John experienced the Christ. He saw the Savior, and then he brought his friends and showed them what he saw, the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. And I think there's a little bit of a lesson in here for us. Where are the places that we can go to see Jesus walking by. Where have we experienced Christ in the past? Jeremiah 29, 13 says that you will seek me and find me when you seek me with all of your heart. And and so I think there are a couple of places. I think the obvious place is the scripture. When we study the life, the work, and the words of Christ, and we do so in faith, God meets us there. God meets us in those instances. Along with time in God's word, the place where we need to show up again and again is in the presence of God, silently before him, praying to him, interceding on behalf of others. And so so when we study the word of God, when we read the word of God, when we go to God in prayer, he meets us there. And what's wonderful about studying the life, work, and words of Christ and allowing that to penetrate our hearts as we sit before him in prayer is that we are shown where else we might find him, where we might see him walking by. See, Jesus teaches us something in Matthew's gospel. That whatever we do to the least of these, we do unto him. That's a wild statement. Whatever we do to the least of these, we do unto him. The least of these being the hungry, the thirsty, the stranger, or maybe a better translation, the foreigner, the naked, the sick, and those in prison. In other words, as we move toward the outsiders of this world with the hope of the gospel, caring for both their physical and spiritual needs, it is there where we get to see and experience the presence of Christ. I mean, Jesus tells us that. Whatever you do to the least of these, you do unto me. He's there. He's in their midst. Mother Teresa once said that we are to see and adore the presence of Jesus in the distressing disguise of the poor. And so like John the Baptist, we need to show up in these spaces again and again and again. We need to show up here studying the scriptures. We need to show up in prayer before God. We need to show up in the mission of God entering into the lives of the broken, the suffering, the oppressed, those who have been cast out. And I think sometimes we fill this bucket of least of these with those who are just physically suffering, 
those who are, you know, poor, who have no money, those who are hungry because they have no food, those who are thirsty because they have nothing to drink. And, and while that's 100% true, and that is something that we as a church need to engage in, and those as individual members of the body of Christ need to engage in, there are other, er <coughs> excuse me, other areas where people suffer as well. Some people are imprisoned in abusive marriages, and they need the hands and feet of Christ to move toward them, to hear them, to care for them, to fight for them. Some are struggling with mental illnesses, and they need the church to come around them. At Redeemer, we've paid for people to get counseling if they were unable to afford it. And while our pastors can care well for people struggling, a trained and skilled counselor is often needed. Uh, I'm grateful. Um, I've become recently friends with some of the people over at, uh, at Keswick and the work they're doing, um, the Langs. And there's just beautiful things that are happening there in the counseling department that I would encourage you to learn more and more about. The point is that the Lord is close to the brokenhearted, and he saves those who are crushed in spirit. And if that's you, receive that promise. Receive that promise that, that God is with you in the midst of your brokenness. And, and church, come around those who are in the midst of that pain, in the midst of that suffering. He's calling us to show up and move ourselves nearer to the suffering and pain of this world with the hope of the gospel and the beauty of that calling, the beauty of what occurs when we step into difficult spaces, when we enter into the lives of those who are struggling and suffering, is that God meets us there. God meets us there. He tells us he's there. What you do unto the least of these, you do unto me. Now, following John's mini-sermon, the text says that the two disciples heard him saying this, and they followed Jesus. It says that right in verse 37, the two disciples heard him say this, and they followed Jesus. And, and the sort of hearing that's going on here is, is not simply like, I heard a noise, but it's the sort of hearing that, oh, I get what you're saying. I understand. I understand the words that you just spoke. And, and what you're saying is that he's the one you've been telling us about. He's the one that you can't stop talking about. See, the interesting thing about John the Baptist's ministry is that it was not meant to last. His goal was to empty his ranks completely and send them off to be with Jesus. That was his entire goal. He says that, that he, 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 he cries out, he, he wants to decrease so that Christ might increase. And so even as we look at the life of John the Baptist, there's something in there that we need to wrap our minds around, that we need to, to, to grab hold of, that, that this whole thing that we're about, this following Jesus thing, it can't be about what we desire, can't be about our needs. Even I'm reminded of, you know, what's going on in Asbury, Right? This, this revival that's happening. It can't be about, like, the spectacle, right? Because I think a lot of times people want to see a spectacle. But it has to be about the, the voices of God's people crying out to him in worship and to him in repentance. Like, that's the point. The praises are always being directed toward Christ. Our lives always need to be pointing toward Christ. And that was John the Baptist's entire goal, to direct people away from himself and toward their Savior, Jesus. That's the point. So this whole thing is all 
about. And that's what we're going to see kind of unfold throughout this entire gospel. It's, it's called the book of signs, right? These first 12 chapters of John. And, and the signs are there for a purpose. They're not there because Jesus is going to put on some magic show. Next week, we're going to talk about Jesus turning water into wine, right? It's not about turning water into wine, but it's about pointing to something beyond it. The sign points to something beyond it. We talked about this a number of weeks ago. That, that, that signs are not meant to, to draw your attention to the sign, but to the thing the sign is pointing to. And the thing that Jesus' signs are pointing to is beyond even the sign that he's performing. And we're going to get to that in just a minute. I don't want to, to kind of show my entire hand just yet. Where am I at here? It says, it says that they followed him. This term follow will show up throughout our passage. And, and it's a word that's going to carry a double meaning. You're actually going to notice that John uses this double meaning thing a lot. First, it simply means to follow after someone, but it also means to become a disciple or a student of somebody. And then Jesus speaks for the first time in the gospel, and he says, what are you seeking? What are you seeking? Again, a double meaning shows up. First, Jesus is literally asking, what do you, what do you guys want? Like, what, what do you want? It's kind of like if you're, if you're a parent and, and your, your kids come into the room and, and, and they're like kind of coming in, they're like, kind of like, you're kind of like, what do you want? What do you want? What's up? What do you need? Right? We've all done it. It's okay. Like, you just don't want to, like, what do you want? But there's a, there's, a, there's a meaning underneath the meeting that digs beneath the surface. What are you looking for in this life? And, and not only is, is, see, John's an incredible writer. Now I'm talking about John the gospel writer. What a, what a brilliant piece of literature this is because he's recounting the story, but now he's looking straight at us. You picked up this book. You're reading through it. You're looking at the life of Jesus. What are you looking for? What do you want? What are you seeking? What are you hoping to get out of this relationship to Christ? Have you considered what this thing is really all about? New Testament scholar and commentator D.A. Carson says, the Messiah confronts those who make any show of beginning to follow him and demands that they articulate what they really want in life. What are you looking for? See, the thing is that people follow Jesus for all sorts of reasons. People want peace. Some people want to get out of jail free card. Some people follow Jesus because they found a community of friends that they can do life with. Some were compelled by some sort of political vision. And so when Jesus asks, what are you looking for? The question that lies beneath the surface is, are you sure you want this? Are you sure you want this? Because the place where Jesus is found, the place where he wants to take us, is a place that is shaped by the suffering of his cross. It is a place that is marked by a sacrificial love for both God and neighbor. And yes, we will experience peace. Our sins absolutely will be forgiven. We will be adopted into a family of God where we will have that community that we long for. And Jesus even offers a political vision. It's called the Sermon on the Mount. But what we must come to understand about this call to discipleship 
is that it is a call to die. It's a call to die. To lay aside our own dreams of what we believe the good life ought to look like and adopt a dream of the kingdom, which is a dream marked by the love and mercy of Christ. And it's a dream marked by repentance, self-denial. We can go all the way back to the garden story of Genesis 1, 2, and 3. And, 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 when, and when God says, do not eat of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, he's saying, you need to deny yourself. You need to deny yourself. And, and what do they do? They don't deny themselves. They, they feed themselves. They feed their flesh. And the same message goes forth for those of us who have been brought into the, the, the life of Christ, who have repented of our sins. Our life needs to be marked by denying the flesh denying ourselves by repenting of sin. And those who, who, who have not yet come to faith, when you come to faith, what Jesus is saying is, is you need to give up on that dream of, of a life that you thought was going to bring you some sort of happiness, peace, and joy, whatever it might be, and you need to step into the life of Christ. And so again, it's a denial of all the things that we believe are going to bring us flourishing peace, whatever the case may be. And he's saying, no, no, no. No, the road that, that actually leads to that is much different than you can imagine. It's much different than you think. And so the disciples respond, where are you staying? Where are you, where are you spending the night? Where are you going to sleep? Another way to translate this question is, where are you abiding? Again, John, brilliant writer, double meaning. He's making a theological point. Notice how Jesus responds. Come, you'll see. You want to know where I'm abiding? You want to know where I'm remaining? Take a walk. I'm going to show you. And by taking a walk, he doesn't mean like, like just come spend the night and you'll see. No, no, no. Follow me. Follow me all the way and you will see exactly where I am remaining. See, in John 15, 4, it says, Jesus is, is, is teaching and he says, abide in me and I in you. Same word. Whoever abides in me and I in him, he is it that bears much fruit. In other words, the disciples are asking, where are you staying? And Jesus is saying, come with me and you will see that I plan on abiding or taking up residence right within you. But in order for that to happen, you got to follow me. you got to follow me, and following me means bearing your cross. Text continues. See, the thing about following Jesus before we get into the text, about becoming his disciple, is that it is a process. We don't figure it out all on day one. And that's going to become clearer and clearer as we make our way through the series. But the beauty of God's grace is that it is not contingent on us having it all figured out. Check out what happens here. Verse 40 and following. One of the two heard John speak and follow Jesus. Um, one of the two who heard John speak and follow Jesus was Andrew, Simon Peter's brother. His first, he first found his own brother Simon and said to him, We have found the Messiah, which means Christ. He brought him to Jesus. Jesus looked at him and said, So you are Simon, the son of John. You shall be called Cephas, which means Peter. See, notice what Andrew does, right? He finds his brother who is Simon Peter. This is the Peter 
who is all over the Gospels, right? This is Peter. If you've been around the Bible at all, you know who Peter is. He's the one who is constantly putting his foot in his mouth. He's the one who denies Jesus three times. In Matthew 16, Jesus calls this Peter Satan. It's also the Peter who faithfully served the church, who wrote First and Second Peter, and who died a martyr's death because he would not deny his Savior ultimately. And when Andrew finds his brother, he says to him, we have found the Messiah. We have found the one that the Old Testament scriptures promised, the king of Israel, the anointed one. Again, another model begins to emerge here. Andrew hears John the Baptist preach about the Lamb of God. He follows after Christ, and he tells those who are closest to him. One commentator describes this entire section as, as, as there's three ways to evangelize. Um, there's, there's gospel-centered preaching. There's talking to your family about Jesus and then talking to your friends about Jesus. And, and it's, it's such a helpful way to just kind of view the text. But the point is, is that this is how the church grows, by people catching a vision of Christ and then telling others about him. And then notice what Andrew does. He brings him to Jesus. He brings him to Jesus, and sometimes that is all that evangelism is, is simply bringing someone to Jesus. That could mean telling them about the person and work of Christ. It could mean simply bringing them to church to hear the gospel preached. Maybe it's bringing them with you as you go and serve the poor, praying for an opportunity to speak about the hope that is within you. Whatever it might look like, there always seems to be some sort of bringing involved. And the people who seem to do this the best, I don't know if you've noticed this, are the new followers of Jesus. For some reason, there is a fire in the lives of new converts, a fire that has not yet been quenched by arguments over theology or political positions, and, and they're just excited that they met Jesus. And my prayer is, is, is that, because I think, you know, again, I have revival on my mind because I've been reading about it and just fascinated by it. But I, th I think part of that is, is remembering our first love, right? The Bible talks about that. Remembering, like, what it was like when we first met Jesus, when we first realized that my sins were, were far too many for me to carry and that the love of Christ just washes over me and cleanses me of that. And that joy that we experienced. Because I do think that sometimes we, we just forget. We forget. And I'm praying that, that we would be reminded of that. And I think that's a work of the Spirit. I think that's something that the Spirit of God does for us. And so I'm praying that that happens for us here at Redeemer Fellowship. But then check it out. Verse 42. It says, it says, it says that, that Jesus looked at Peter, that same sort of looking, right? So he's staring him right in the eyes. Right? This is kind of like that, like, Pretend you're reprimanding your child. You got him right, right, right in the eyes. You're talking to them. But this isn't a reprimand. Pretend that you're looking at your spouse on your wedding day and you're staring at them in the eyes. Maybe that's a better way, right? Because it's not so negative. But it's not negative. Discipline's not a negative thing. It's good. We need to raise up our kids anyway. So Jesus is staring at Peter. Then he does something. It's so cool. He gives Peter a nickname. So he does. He says, I'm, I'm, Simon, I'm going to call you Peter from now. I'm going to call you Cephas. I'm going to call you the rock, right? Like, not like the rock, like maybe, I don't know. <laughs> right? He calls him rock. That's what Peter means. But see, the thing about Peter is that he was anything but a rock, right? It's like kind of like 
It's kind of like if you grew up with a guy who was like really tall and you called him like shorty, right? Like that's what's going on here. Peter is anything but a rock. He's a mess. He's impulsive. He didn't really catch the vision. That's why, that's why Jesus called him Satan. He says, get behind me, Satan. See, Jesus is talking about like, I'm going to die. I'm going to go to the cross. All this is going to happen. And Peter's like, no, no, that's not going to happen to you, Jesus. No, that's no good. And he's like, get behind me, Satan. You have no idea what I'm about to do. See, he doesn't get the vision yet. And remember, he's the one who denied Jesus three times. But Jesus calls him a rock. At their first meeting, he calls him a rock. What's going on here? This is one of the coolest parts of the passage, guys. This is really incredible because there's, there's this grace that is just lavished upon Peter at this first interaction. There's this, there's this word that is spoken over the life of Peter through the lips of his Savior that is so incredible. Check it out. And if we read over it quickly, we miss it. It's incredibly important. And I'm actually going to read a quote. D.A. Carson says this. He says, when Peter is brought to him, Jesus assigns a new name as a declaration of what Peter will become. This is not so much merely a predictive utterance as it is a declaration of what Jesus will make of him. Jesus calls us and he makes us what he calls us to be. Catch that? Jesus calls us, and he makes us what he calls us to be. That's why I have a hard time calling us sinners. Although we do sin, and we struggle with the sin nature, the Bible refers to us as saints. How saintly were you this week? But guess what? You're a saint. You are a holy saint of God. You catch what's happening here? At the beginning of Peter's journey, I'm going to call you rock. At the beginning of his journey, before he writes First and Second Peter, before he does any of the things he does, before he preaches that sermon at Pentecost and people are getting saved left and right, before any of that, knowing full well that he's going to deny him three times, knowing full well that he doesn't understand the vision of the kingdom, knowing full well that he is impulsive and he is an absolute wreck of a human being, Jesus looks at him and says, rock. And so what I'm trying to get at here is the moment, the moment we bend our knee to King Jesus, the words holy are spoken over us. You catch that? holy, knowing full well every single thing you're going to do from that moment on, Jesus speaks holy over your life. Why? Because the righteousness of Christ has been poured out upon you and within you. That's what this thing's about. And that's why when we, when we screw up, when we, when we fumble the ball, when we sin... Jesus is there saying, come back to me. It's okay. I got you. I got you. Remember what I, remember what I said about you all those years back when you bent your knee to me? I meant it. And I still believe it of you. 
So follow me. Put that aside and keep following me. Oh, you did it again for the 12th time this week? Okay, okay, all right. Remember what I spoke to you on the day you bent your knee to me? I still mean it. Just put it away, come follow me. Guys, that's true. That's true. That's what the Bible teaches, right? And so Paul asked the question, should I sin more so grace may abound? No, no, no. He's very clear about that. But we're going to fumble the ball. And he wants us to know that he sees the rock. He doesn't see the sin. He sees the rock. And, and, and later on in the Bible, it says that the rock is Christ, right? As this is good news. This is really good news. Text continues. Now we're on the next day. And notice how, how John moves the story forward. Um, the next day, the next day, the next day. Verses 43 and following, it says, The next day Jesus decided to go to Galilee. He found Philip and said to him, follow me. Now Philip was from Bethsaida, the city of Andrew and Peter. Philip found Nathanael and said to him, We have found him of whom Moses in the law and also the prophets wrote, Jesus of Nazareth, the son of Joseph. Nathanael said to him, Can anything good come out of Nazareth? Philip said to him, Come and see. Jesus saw Nathanael coming toward him and said of him, Behold, an Israelite indeed in whom there is no deceit. Nathanael said to him, How do you know me? Jesus answered him, before Philip called you, when you were under the fig tree, I saw you. A couple of things. Jesus calls Philip, and immediately Philip goes and finds Nathaniel. He finds his buddy. Bro, you got to check this out. You know all that stuff we've been reading about in, in the prophets and Moses? He's here. Come. And then there's this whole Nazareth thing. We talked about this during Advent. If you remember, Nazareth was a, a backwoods town. It was a place where no one would expect anything good to happen, let alone where the Messiah would be from. We talked about how sometimes in New Jersey we feel like we're the Nazareth of, of the country, right? Right. We don't believe that, but people say that about it. It's not true. Jersey's the greatest state on earth. Period. Stop. <laughs> Period. Stop. Talk about it after if you disagree. It's fine. In the parking lot. I'm not really going to fight anybody. I'm not very strong. And then Philip uses the same words spoken by Jesus a few verses prior. Come and see. Come and see. Come check it out. There's also like, I kind of feel like there's this sense too where, where Philip's kind of like, I know, right? Nazareth, right? I was shocked too. Come check it out. And when, when Jesus saw Nathaniel coming, he referred to him as an Israelite in whom there is no deceit. couple things here, right? Jesus saw in Nathaniel a man who was genuinely looking for the truth, who was genuinely seeking for meaning in his life, whose motives were pure, but also there's something similar happening here to what was happening with Peter. He, he sees in Nathaniel the man that he is forming him into. He, he sees the end product, right? That's the beauty is that, is that when we come to faith, and, and I don't want to go through it all again, but Jesus sees the end product, right? Ephesians says we are seated in the heavenly places. Like right now, we're seated there. You, you, guys, you guys feel that? We don't. I mean, maybe sometimes we might. But 
the Bible says that's where we are, and, and that's kind of what's happening here. And, and, and what I think is also happening is, is that question that was asked in verse 38 is still ringing in our ears as, as he's talking to Nathaniel. What are you looking for? And then there's this big reveal. It says in verses 49 and following, Nathaniel answered him, Rabbi, you are the son of God. You are the king of Israel. Jesus answered him, because I said to you, I saw you under a fig tree. You believe? Like, that's what did it for you? You're going to see greater things than these. And he said, truly, truly, amen, amen, I say to you, you will see heaven opened. The angels of God ascending and descending on the Son of Man. See, Nathaniel is overwhelmed by Jesus' ability to see him under the fig tree. And this is what I was referring to at the beginning of the sermon, that, that Jesus is kind of unimpressed with this. And, and then he says, because I saw you, like, that's what did it for you? Like, really? This little, like, parlor trick, like, seemingly? That's what, oh, you have no idea what's coming down the pike. You have no idea. See, he doesn't think he did anything all that impressive, especially in light of what he knows is coming. Jesus knows what's coming. And the question is, what is coming? What is Jesus referring to when he says, you will see greater things than these? Is he referring to him turning water into wine? Is he talking about the cleansing of the temple? Or maybe it's one of his many healings that he's going to perform. At one point, Jesus heals a blind man. He feeds 5,000 people with five loaves of bread and two fish. And in John 11, he raises Lazarus from the dead. Is that what he's talking about? Well, well the answer on, on the immediate level is yes. He's referring to all of that. But the answer is also no, because none of that is really the point. Remember, the book of signs is pointing beyond itself. The signs that show up throughout the Gospel of John are pointing beyond themselves. And he says this thing, you will see heaven opened and the angels of God ascending and descending on the Son of Man. He is quoting Genesis 28. Any, anyone know what story that might have popped out from? Jacob and the ladder, right? Jacob's ladder. Check it out. Genesis 28. If you have your Bibles, you can turn there. I also have it up on the screen. We're going to be looking at verses 10 and following. Now, a little bit of context before we read. The events we're about to look at take place after Jacob tricks his brother Esau and deceives his father Isaac. And so, right, Nathaniel was a man, an Israelite, in whom there was no deceit. And then Jacob is this Israelite who's just full of it, right? Like, there's just deceit, like, overflowing. Like, his cup runneth over with deceit. And so here, let's take a look. Jacob left Beersheba and went toward Haran. And he came to a certain place and stayed there that night because the sun had set. And so he's tired. He's like, this is a good place to take a nap. And so taking one of the stones of the place, he put it under his head. And he laid in that place to sleep. An odd pillow, but I guess that's what they did. He dreamed, and behold, there was a ladder or a stairway set up on the earth, and the top of it reached to heaven, and behold, the angels of God were ascending and descending on it. And behold, the Lord stood above it and said, I am the Lord, the God of Abraham, your father, and the God of Isaac. The land on which you lie I will give to you and to your offspring. And so he's in the promised land. Your offspring, offspring shall be like the dust of the earth, and you shall spread abroad to the west and to the east and to the north and to the south, and in you and your offspring shall all the families of the earth be blessed. Behold, I am with you, and will keep you wherever you go, 
and will bring you back to this land. For I will not leave you until I have done what I have promised you. Then Jacob awoke from his sleep and said, Surely the Lord is in this place, and I did not know it. And he was afraid, and he said, How awesome is this place. This is none other than the house of God, and this is the gate of heaven. So early in the morning, Jacob took the stone that he had put under his head and set it up for a pillar and poured oil on top of it. He called the name of that place Bethel, but the name of the city was Luz at the first. So what is going on here? Well, first, there's a ladder or stairway that connects heaven and earth, all right? And on that ladder, there are angels ascending and descending, and the Lord is there, and he speaks the promise he made to both Abraham and Isaac that the land would be his, his offspring would be innumerable, and that all the families of the earth would be blessed through his family. And so he is just reiterating his covenant that he made with Abraham and Isaac. And then Jacob names the place Bethel, which is pretty significant. We'll talk about that in just a second. In other words, God is reminding Jacob of his covenant and that he will remain faithful to it. That's what's happening in this event. So why does Jesus allude to it? What is going on here? A few things. The word for ladder, get a little technical for a second, all right, bear with me. The word for ladder or stairway comes from the same Hebrew root for the word to lift up. This is key. Put that in your mind for a second. The Lord is reminding Jacob of his, of his covenant. This is also important. And the fact that Jacob names the place, place Bethel, meaning house of God, is also important. The point, all of this means nothing if we fail to recognize that Jacob is dreaming of a place where heaven and earth are joined together. Okay? A place where heaven and earth are joined together. And so when Jesus says that his disciples, and, and Jesus is talking to all of them now, not just Nathaniel. When he says that his disciples will see greater things than than him being able to see Nathan under a fig tree, what he is saying is that they're going to see that he is the very place where all of this will take place. Catch that? Jesus is pointing out and articulating this truth that, that what they're looking at is Bethel, the house of God. What they're looking at is the gate of heaven. And that Jesus will be lifted up. See, that term is used throughout the Gospels to talk about Jesus' death and resurrection. He will be lifted up, raised up upon a ladder that is shaped like a cross. And so the entire point of this passage is that it's driving toward the cross of Jesus, that the signs, everything that's going on in the book of John is, 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 a, is an arrow that is just streaming towards the death, burial, and resurrection of King Jesus. That's what he means when he says, you will see greater things than these, and the greater thing is the cross. The greater thing is the cross. Jesus is telling his new disciples that they have no idea what they're in for. And that, yes, there's going to be some exciting things along the way, but the ultimate point toward which all of this is driving is the cross. The place where Jesus will be lifted up to die in our place for our sins so that we might have life and live lives marked by the same cross-shaped love that he demonstrated toward us so that others might be brought into the fold. And so when he asks the question, what are you looking for? Sure, it's part of the story, but he's also staring at us 
right into our eyes, and he's asking us to consider if this cross-shaped life is truly what we are looking for. See, we are given so much when we hitch our cart to Jesus. And the best part is that Jesus abides in us, right? Where are you staying? Oh, I'm staying with you. But he wants an all-access pass. He wants to get into every nook and cranny, and he wants to make all of it holy. He wants our thoughts, even the really bad ones. He wants those. He wants to change them. He wants our marriages. He wants our singleness. He wants our political ideas. He wants our sexuality. He wants our relationships with our children. He wants our relationships with our parents. He wants our career dreams. He wants our time. He wants our resources. He wants everything. And the question is, what do you want? What are you looking for? I've been wrestling with this all week. All week. Because he's asking, is that what you want? You want you to give it all to me? Okay. Let's rock. If you want to give it all to me, let's do it. That's fine. But is that what you want? Right? The Bible talks about a cost of discipleship. And that's what we're looking at. That's what's unfolding here. As, as, he, as he drives his point toward the cross, he's saying that's what discipleship looks like. He's looking at Peter, he's looking at Andrew, he's looking at Nathaniel, he's looking at the unnamed one who, who scholars believe is possibly John, the writer of the gospel. He's saying, you want that? If you want that, let's do it. Come follow me. Come follow me. What I can promise is that giving ourselves wholly and completely to Christ, it's worth it. It's worth it. And talk to some of the older saints in the room. I guarantee you they'll all say it's worth it. All of our deepest longings, the stuff that lies beneath the surface. When we submit them to Jesus, he meets us there. When we give of ourselves for the sake of others, he meets us there. When we actively fight against sin and temptation, he meets us there. See, Jesus is staring all of us in the eyes and he's asking, what? are you looking for? And he's pleading, come and see. Come and see what I got for you. Come and see what I got for you. And the promise is that when we follow him, we will see. We will see. We will see that the cross-shaped life is the life of true flourishing and that we truly do win by losing and that self-denial is the mark of a follower of Jesus and that in all of that, because I, I don't think I named anything that was particularly fun. Jesus walks with us. See, that's the key, right? That's the whole point of this. That's the whole point of the Bible. We're going to talk about this in discipleship course. God with us. That's the point. That's the point. Right? What, is it, what does it benefit a man if he gains, gains the whole world but loses his soul? Like, it doesn't, none of this stuff matters what matters is the presence of God in our lives. And he's offering that to us. 
And because we live in a fallen world, the presence of God means suffering. That's what it means. In the garden, it didn't mean that. It meant just utter joy all day long, right? Just eating pomegranates all day long, right? But that's not what it means anymore. It does mean we live in a world that is combative against the good news of King Jesus. It's combative against the kingdom of God. And so when we hitch our cart to King Jesus, yes, we will experience suffering, persecution, all the things, but we get God. And so when we're, we're putting things out on the scale, right, like one far outweighs the other. Do we believe that? Do we want that? That's the question that we all need to wrestle with. That's the question. Jesus walks with us if we give ourselves to him. This is good news. And so my, my plea with all of you is, is whatever it is that is holding you back, today is the day to simply lay it down and come. Come to the cross. Come to the place where heaven and earth come together. The gateway of heaven. Jesus. Come. Come and see. Come and see the beauty and wonder of what it is to follow Jesus. And it is wonderful. It is wonderful. Let's go to the Lord. Father in heaven, Lord, we love you with all of our hearts. And Father, I pray right now, Lord God, if, if there is anyone in here who is wrestling, Lord God, who's not sure that they want to give everything to you, Father, that today would be the day. Lord, that we might repent of our sin, that we might give it over to you completely, Lord God. I pray for those people right now, Lord God, whoever it might be. Call them unto yourself. Make them holy as you are holy. Father, we love you with all of our hearts. We truly do. We thank you for your grace. We thank you for this incredible life that you have given us in your son Jesus, Father. We don't deserve it but yet you, you give it to us, Lord God. That is good news. That is good, good news, Father. Be with us now, in Christ's name, amen.